the elders have asked me for a couple of months to consider a sermon series or an ABF or a Sunday school class or something to deal with the fact that we've had so many, the Lord has blessed us with so many new families. There's so many new faces that haven't been here three, four, five, six years ago. And we thought it would be helpful to remind those of us who've been gathering here over the long years and those of us who are newer, what we understand, the bonds that tie us together in the local church, what it means to be part of a local church. Um, we believe firmly that God is calling all of his children, all those who are justified by faith, to unite themselves in local churches. And the New Testament gives us clearly the pattern that there is some record keeping, some form of membership. There's widow's lists, there's people added to numbers, but what the New Testament doesn't give us is the mechanism. How? How are they added? So we've had to come up with our way. We've had to draw the circle of, of how we mark out who the body is um, that the wisdom God's given to us. Specifically, if you've um, become a member here in the last few years, we've talked through six points with you. We have six points that as we try to draw that boundary marker of who is Martinsdale Community Church, we thought were effective and helpful markers. And so over five weeks, we're to go through those six points trying to give a vision for what constitutes the local church in general and specifically what marks out Martinsdale Community Church, what it means to us. If you're a member here, these are the relationships, the commitments that we understand to have with you and with each other. Um, and so that said, I'd like to begin with the most important mark, and that is that we are united in the gospel and we are united in baptism. So. Our first of our six points for membership is asking, verifying, talking about someone's profession of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing, nothing, let me say that again, nothing is more important than clarity on that issue and true faith in that gospel. So we share a common faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we're thinking about marking ourselves out, who we are, this is the first point of consideration. And so I want to look at this through four subpoints. First, the gospel's centrality. The gospel's centrality. And if you've turned to John 8, and here's here's the point I want to make. The gospel divides all humanity. We may look at humanity and view that there are many races, many tribes, many nations, and from one vantage point, that's accurate. But ultimately, from an eternal perspective, there are only two classes of people. The, the entire world can be divided into two types of people. There are sons of God and sons of the devil. Children of darkness, children of light. Those who are born again and those who are dead in their sins. And the gospel is that line of demarcation. Let me just read to you Jesus' words in John chapter 8, starting in, um, well, let's start in verse 39. He's talking to the Jews. They said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were children, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. So they're claiming descent, physical descent from Abraham. Hey, we're, we're of the Abraham tribe. We're of the Abraham people. And, and Jesus is insisting, no, your, your lineage, your parentage is of a different sort. Um, you are doing the works that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. Okay, if you want to press us, God's our father. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. See, in one sense, in a very real sense, we are not all children of God. Jesus doesn't buy into that. He says, no, 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 your father's not God. If, you, if your father were God, you'd have family traits, the most distinct being you'd love me. No, 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 he said. Um, verse 42, Jesus said, if your God were your father, you'd love me, for I came from God and I am here. I have not come on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear what I say. And then he says it really plainly. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning 
and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. So we get it from Jesus' own words that there are really only two types of people in this world. Those who are at peace and reconciled with God, those who are sons and daughters of God, and those who are sons and daughters of the devil. And so when we're trying to figure out who we are, this is the most important distinction. Um, Jesus again says in John 14, 16, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me. No one comes through me, the Father, except through me. First John, again and again, by this the sons of God, by this the sons of the devil are known. And we want to start here because these distinctions trump all other distinctions. These are distinctions that trump blood and familial distinctions. There's the, uh, you know the passage in Matthew. They, they tell Jesus, your mother, your brothers are outside. Matthew 12, 48 to 50, he replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So here is a, a, a line of demarcation. Here is a distinction that trumps family, children, parentage, marriage. The gospel divides humanity. And so when we try to figure out who we are, what the local church is, the first thing we gotta figure out is those who are within the grace of the gospel and those who are without. And the second point is there is no other gospel. There's, there's only one way to God. These are unpopular truths in today's world. They want to insist that all religions get you to God. And again, Jesus himself is clear on this point. I am the way, I am the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 1 spells this out as plainly as it could be spelled out. He's concerned because the churches in Galatia seem to be drifting from the gospel. And he writes this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That is a strong statement. I don't think there's any parallel in strength to any other claim in the New Testament. Paul insisting, I don't care if the resurrected apostle Paul showed up bodily on stage. If an angel from God so glorious, you and I be tempted to bow down and worship him, showed up with a different message, Paul says, damn him to hell. That's the strength of the Greek here. Anathema. Let him be accursed. There is only one gospel. There's only one way to God. There is only one message of good news, not many. And so we start with clarity on this. If you understand anything, if you comprehend anything, if you've responded to anything, this, this message is what matters. It is singular in nature. There is no other gospel. Now, the word gospel simply means good news. And so when we think about the gospel, I want you to think about it in, in two ways. There's the content, that there's news, there's an announcement, there's a declaration, there's a content of information in the gospel, and then there's a response on the part of those who hear. So we're going to next move from the gospel centrality to gospel content, gospel content. And again, we want clarity on this. Um, what binds us together should be, we are those who have heard and believed and responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is a good review for us. And if this is something you're not clear on, please, please talk to me, talk to one of the elders. If there's any confusion here, the gospel's content. And the gospel is good news, but the good news assumes bad news. Again, this can be how the gospel can be challenging. T turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans, the, the, the one book of the Bible probably most dedicated to explaining, unfolding, unpacking the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 16, Paul gives us his, his declaration of intent for the whole book. 
You could mark this as your thesis statement for the book of Romans. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed for faith, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul says he's not ashamed. He's, he's excited. He's proud of the gospel because the gospel reveals God's righteousness. But before he gets back to that theme of the gospel revealing God's righteousness, which he does, if you look over to 321, he picks it back up there. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed. Something else has to be revealed first. And in 118, and I'm sure... The Romans reading this for the first time, this may have appeared an odd detour. Something else gets revealed. Remember, Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, for it reveals God's righteousness. But before he can get to the gospel's solution, we've got to understand the bad news, for the wrath of God is revealed. And so your first point, the contents of the gospel, is this. Man is fully sinful and stands guilty before God. Man is fully sinful and stands guilty before God. And when we consider the gospel, I think it is important that we unpack this notion of sin. Our, again, our culture doesn't like this. It is not enough to get someone to admit they're not perfect. The most arrogant and proud person you could meet, I'm sure, would admit, oh, I'm not perfect, I've made my mistakes. But there's a vast difference between understanding yourself as a fundamentally good person with some flaws a fundamentally good person who's made some mistakes, and the Bible's declaration on man, that in our heart of hearts and in our innermost being, there is corruption, that from the deepest recesses of the human heart all the way out through our speech, through our actions, through our imaginations, there is corruption, and that sin, first and foremost, isn't the things we do against other people, although those are wicked, but it's fundamentally against God. It's this notion that I have offended a holy God, that I have rebelled against him, that I have defied him again and again. That is my nature. That's why when Paul unpacks sin, he starts there. If you think of a tree, the root of the tree is cosmic treason and rebellion. The fruit on the tree to verify its corruption are those horizontal things. Just read with me through Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodlessness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal powers, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. There are no atheists. Not really. God has just insisted, notice that, it's plain to them, he's shown it to them, and it's been understood, having been clearly perceived. That's the basis upon which all of humanity has no excuse. If someone could truly say before God, I didn't know you were there, I didn't understand, Paul's saying they would have an excuse. Now, I do believe people convince themselves of lies. I'm not, I'm not saying that every person you've met who claims to be an atheist knows they're lying. I'm just saying when each one of us stands before God. There is no human being who will be able to truly say, but I didn't know. They did know. That's the basis of the guilt. And it's in light of that knowledge that then man's sinful response comes out. Verse 21. For though they knew God, there it is, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. So get this, at the heart of our sinfulness is the refusal to worship God, the refusal to give thanks to him and give honor and glory to him. And rather, instead, each and every one of us chose to worship and serve and treat as truly valuable things in the created order. That's the heart and nature of sin. It's not that occasionally I've been rude to people. It's I know there is a holy God. I know there is a creator. And I refuse to give him thanks. And I refuse to honor him because I want to do what I want to do. And on that basis, I stand guilty before God. God's judgment rightly falls on me. 
I'm not a good person who makes mistakes occasionally. I'm a cosmic rebel, guilty of treason, willful, repeated, continuous defiance. That, that's, the, that's the Bible's declaration of the problem the gospel solves. This is one of the reasons why our culture's obsession on victimhood can be unhelpful. It is awfully hard to view yourselves as guilty before God if you've been told over and over again you're fundamentally a victim. You, you may be a victim. People may have victimized you. But first and foremost, you and I are the perpetrators of wrong. We're, we're the criminals. We're the oppressors. We're the wrongdoers. First and foremost. That's, that's the first part of the gospel's declaration. It's usually the part that our culture finds offensive. But it's critical for us to understand this. All of us come into the world this way. My youngest children... This is true of them as it's true of the oldest among us. This is God's declaration of what the problem is. Now that scene, if you pick it up in verse 28, in the horizontal evidences, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. There's a catch-all phrase if ever there was one. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So there are the horizontal evidences. Those are the lists that most people in the culture can say, yeah, those things aren't good. But Paul wants to make it clear that's just the fruit on the tree of the refusal to honor and acknowledge God. The root problem is we see the evidences of God around us. We see the creation declare his goodness, his wisdom, and we want to live how we want to live. We don't want to honor and serve God. We don't want to give him thanks. We want to do something else. And so we suppress that truth and we trade and exchange his glory for that of other things. So the gospel announces that man is fully sinful, not just an outer layer coding, but through and through and stands guilty before God. And if you're going to be, if you're going to be able to be saved, you've got to first acknowledge that God's wrath and judgment rightly falls on you. You have no valid excuse. Now, in light of that bad news, we have some good news. And that is next, that God sent his son to live a sinless life for us. So the gospel assumes, and what Paul does in, in Romans 1, 18 through 3, 20, is close every avenue of escape. When, when Paul brings Jesus Christ forward as the Savior, the Deliverer, he wants us to understand this is the only possible avenue of escape, not one of many. That means no amount of your good works could ever outweigh your bad. And, and we get this intrinsically. People who understand this in the legal sphere, who understand we do not let murderers go free simply because they could make a list of 50 laws they haven't broken. All that matters is, did you murder? If you did, you go to jail or you are executed in some states. And we get that in the social sphere and that somehow we imagine that a holy God is going to say, well, you did some good stuff, so I guess that kind of outweighs it all. No, no. No one will be justified by the doing of the law. No amount of good deeds can make up for our evil deeds. And Paul makes it clear, not only do we know God exists, but we know right from wrong. The clearest evidence, we judge other people. Not only do we know right from wrong, but we know doing wrong brings judgment. My, if you've ever seen a child hit another child, what are they communicating? They have a righteous standard and they know about wrath and judgment. And if you've ever torn into somebody, hit somebody, punished somebody, God is saying, you too have just proven you know there's right and wrong and that doing wrong brings judgment because you've metered it out yourself. So Paul can say in chapter 2, verse 1, you therefore have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. 
And only when we recognize we're guilty, we're sinful, and within our own ability, there is nothing we can do. There is no avenue of escape. There is no good deed you can perform, no ritual you can undertake, which is frightening because it's, it puts us in a desperate place, which is where we are. We just need to believe that and, and recognize that and not flatter ourselves. Then there is good news that God sent his son to live a sinless life for us. Not only does Jesus die for our sins, we'll get to that in our next point, but he lived the life you and I could never live. God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to not only pay our debt, but to provide our righteousness for us. If you've ever wondered why, why couldn't Jesus come to earth the weekend before the crucifixion? Why 33 or so years of living or as John the Baptist said, why, why am I baptizing you? You remember that? Jesus comes out to be baptized. It's a baptism of repentance. What does Jesus need to repent of? And Jesus' answer is striking in Matthew 3, 15. Jesus said to him, let it be so. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What Jesus is saying is he received a baptism of repentance, not because he needed to repent of his sins, but because the people who he was living for and in their stead, because you and I did. Our substitute received our baptism of repentance to fulfill all righteousness. We have a sinless Savior. This is, this is crucial, and one of the points the Gospels and the New Testament makes over and over again, Jesus was not just a good man. He was not just a great man. He was a sinless man. He was a divine man. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, say, 14, sorry, 14 through 15. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's emphasizing Jesus' humanity, how he is like us, and he can sympathize with us, and he has suffered as we suffer. But he adds in this important point, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. God sent his son to live a sinless life for us. Point three, the son of God, Jesus Christ, sinless, perfect, not only provided for us a righteousness, not only did he live on our behalf the life you and I should have lived but couldn't, but Christ willingly died as our substitute. And this is the heart of the good news. This is the heart of how God can forgive. Um, the, the God revealed in Scripture is a God who is both righteous and merciful. And, and the problem is, how, how can you do both? You could, on the one hand, be merciful. You're not incredibly righteous, but you just sort of, you know, okay, I'll look the other way, it's okay. Or you can have a God who's righteous, but then what hope have we? Um, one of my favorite passages to, to explain this in simplicity is 2 Corinthians 5, 20-21, tying in this notion of a substitute with the heart of the gospel. Paul writes this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The heart of the gospel is this notion of, of a switch the great exchange, C.S. Lewis called it. On the cross, God looks at Jesus, and because he willingly takes our sin upon himself and our guilt, God treats him as we deserve. He pours his wrath out on him. The Son of God cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not for anything he has done, but for the things you and I have done. Jesus stands in our stead. Justice is done truly. A full Sacrifice is made so that God can then look at us and view us as though we had lived Christ's sinless life. Paul says the wages of sin is death, but Jesus takes that paycheck. He takes that wage upon himself on the cross, and he gifts us his righteousness. 
At, at the heart of the gospel is this notion of another standing in our stead. You, you cannot atone for your sins, but Christ can. And the good news of the gospel is that God sent his son. He lived a sinless life. He died on our behalf. He willingly took our sin upon himself. 1 Peter 3.18 puts it this way. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So understanding Jesus' death on the cross is crucial. It's not just a sign of love. It's not just an example. It's not just a sign of him identifying with us. At its heart, it is justice being done on your and my sin, which makes, I can put it as simply as I can, your sins, my sins, either are paid for on the cross or will be paid for by you and me in hell. Justice will be done. There's no third option. Your sins will either be borne by you forever in just righteous punishment or they're borne by Christ on the cross. That, that, those are the only options. This is the good news of the gospel. Point four, Christ was raised in glory as proof of his divinity and of the full payment made for our sins. Raised in glory. This is the centerpiece of the New Testament preaching of the cross. The proof that Jesus was who he said he was is the resurrection. A man can say he's the Son of God. A man can say he's dying for others. But Jesus, in predicting his resurrection and then being raised from the dead, proved it. That's now Paul begins Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ, Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Because he was a sinless sacrifice, because he was holy, Death could not hold him. And now, not only is he raised, but he's glorified. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the Christian claim is that one day all people Everyone in this room will do homage to Jesus. Every knee will bow. Some will bow voluntarily, and some will bow because they're shattered. Because the Son of Man has triumphed over his enemies. All will do honor to the Son. But those who do it willingly now receive the blessing of forgiveness. So those are the claims of the gospel, that man is sinful and guilty, that God did for us what we could not do for ourselves, that he sent his son in human form to live a sinless life on our behalf, that he willingly died as our substitute on the cross, and he was raised on the third day, vindicating his claim to deity, vindicating his claim to sinlessness, proving that the sacrifice was sufficient and accepted, which brings us then to the gospel's command. The gospel's command. And I get the word command from Paul's preaching in, in Acts. Oftentimes we talk about inviting people. And that's true in a sense, but the Apostle Paul can put it this way in Acts 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. There's a, a very real sense in which God commands you to respond to this good news. This declaration requires a response. Because even though these things are true and declared, the distinction, that dividing line between the sons of God and the sons of the devil are how you respond to that. Satan knows who Jesus is. Satan knows the consequence of what Jesus did on the cross. Everything I've just said, I'd have no reason to think Satan doesn't 
agree with. He just hates it. Knowing truth, according to James, just qualifies you to be a demon. You believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble, James writes. What matters is how we respond, and there's a commanded response. Now, the New Testament can speak of this response using one of two terms, pretty interchangeably. Um, the first one here is repentance, and the other is faith. Those are your two blanks. I, I got a whole list here of times where either one of them is used. We're, we're going to talk through this briefly, but in the New Testament, I think it's describing one thing two ways. I've done this a dozen times. I'll do it another time. If you were to say to me, Jeremy, turn to the south. Here we go. Turn to the south. If you were to say, Jeremy, turn away from the north. There you go. Repentance, when the New Testament uses it as a condition of salvation, is speaking to what you're turning from. You've been worshiping and serving something. You've been living life as though something were worth living for. You've been ascribing value and worth, which is the root of the word worship, worthship, to something. You're turning from that to worship something else. This is the message of John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 1 through 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the next chapter after John is arrested, Jesus takes up John's mantle. From that time, Matthew four seventeen, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sometimes that's all you get. In the very first sermon in the book of Acts, when Peter is preaching and the men are cut to the heart, and they say, what shall we do? Peter says this. Peter said to them, repent. Be baptized, every one of you. When the first Gentile convert, Cornelius, comes to faith, how does the Jerusalem church understand it? They say, then God has also granted repentance to the Gentiles that leads to life. So repentance is a response, and it's the flip side of the same coin of faith or belief. Faith or belief, trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 8, 24, that unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Paul and Silas to the Philippian jailer, when they had brought him out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then there are a number of occasions where repentance and faith are put together in the gospel proclamation. In Mark 1, 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The Apostle Paul summarizing his ministry of church planting. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come. And in Acts 20, 21, also summarizing his ministry, Paul says, I testified both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the response God requires? It's not simply acknowledging it is true, but entrusting yourself to this message. You, you've been trusting something. You've been worshiping something, and you're turning from that to Christ. You're turning from your sin, from your rebellion. You're renouncing your treason, and you're entrusting yourself to the Son of God. That is the response that God requires in the gospel, which leads then to the gospel's consequence, the gospel's consequence. What happens when somebody responds to the gospel message with repentance and faith? This could be a list of eight things. I'm, I'm just trying to summarize it in two for the sake of time. But the first and most significantly, forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. One of my favorite verses, Romans 5, 1 through 2. He writes, therefore, since we have been justified, declared innocent by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with god that, that's what the gospel is about fundamentally the gospel is not first and foremost about finding meaning for your life you you will find meaning the gospel first and foremost isn't about emotional fulfillment i believe there is some the joy of the spirit First and foremost, the, the gospel is about dealing with God's wrath and your alienation with him and bringing you to peace with your creator. Forgiveness and reconciliation. And then linking to our second point, 
the baptism by the Spirit into the universal church. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul writes this. 12, 12, and 13. For just as the, mem- the body is one, and as many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in, or by, you could translate it, one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. If you've turned from all else to trust Christ, you have been forgiven. You've been reconciled, and that was accomplished as God's Spirit immersed you. The word baptized means to dip or to dunk you into the body of Christ. This is the universal body of Christ. This makes you a Christian, makes you a member of Christ's body, the church. This is what makes you part of his household so that Jesus can say, here are my mother, my brothers, my sisters, my sons, my daughters. The gospel does that, and only the gospel does that. And so when we consider membership, the first point is we, we're, we can only bring into membership those who are members of the universal church. We're trying to deal with the local church. Faith in the gospel, trusting Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins, makes you a member of the universal church. His spirit has united you with Christ in his body. Which brings us to our second point. We share a common baptism into the body of Christ. And this this is an important distinction to make. The Spirit's immersion, the Spirit's baptism is effective, has consequence. Things happen as a result. You're united with Christ. You're united with his body. You've received a spirit of adoption by which you cry, Abba, Father. But water baptism symbolizes that. In the same way that my marriage ring is not my marriage covenant, but it's the visible sign of my marriage covenant. See, I didn't stop being married, and if one of you put this on, you wouldn't be married, consequently. But that doesn't make signs insignificant. So the Spirit's baptism is effective, has consequence, unites us with Christ and his body, and then we then share in a common baptism into the body of Christ. Two points quickly here. First, Baptism is the first act of Christian obedience, the first act of Christian obedience. So much so that some, in reading through the proclamation of the gospel in Acts, have wrongly concluded baptism, water baptism, is necessary for salvation. And the reason for that is because so often it's the message of Christ and then those who would respond, okay, respond by getting baptized. If you turn to Acts chapter 2. Peter's proclamation of the gospel in Acts 2 is is of this sort. Acts 2, 37 to 41. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They're convicted. We put to death the Messiah. God kept his promises. He sent his anointed one and we killed him. What shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. Notice that? There's, there's not like a bunch of people who get saved and some of them decide to get baptized. There's a one-to-one correlation. Those who received his word were baptized. And there were added, this is that notion of membership, somehow they're keeping track, that day about 3,000 souls. So Peter's repent. And those of you who repent, the first thing you need to show that is you get baptized. And by doing that, they know who to add to their number. The first act of Christian obedience. It is not necessary for salvation any more than my wedding band makes me married or unmarried. 
However, on the flip side, that doesn't make it insignificant. The New Testament knows nothing of unbaptized Christianity. It, it doesn't. It is commanded to all who believe. This is the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. This is telling you how you make disciples. How do you make someone a disciple? Pronounce the gospel to them, and then you baptize them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Or, we saw in Peter's sermon, if, if, you're, if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if, if you have been saved by his death on the cross, he commands you. He doesn't suggest you. He commands you to publicly identify yourself with him and the work he's done and to be baptized. Um, this is not optional. It's not necessary for salvation, but hearts that don't want to obey Jesus are. Well, actually, let me flip that around. Baptism is not necessary for salvation, but a faith that calls him Lord that wants to follow him is. So when people quibble with me and say, well, do I really have to do this? Do I really have to? Is this really important? Hearts that ask questions like that concern me. Because if you've come to faith in Jesus as your Messiah, what you should be saying is, what can I do to obey him? What can I do to serve him? What can I do to please him? What can I do to identify with him? So if you have questions about this, come, come talk to me. We need to keep moving. Next, it's commanded only to those who believe. As we draw our circle here, and this is one of the reasons why baptism is our second point. When we talk to people who want to be members here, first question we ask, we have a discussion. Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in him? Is your understanding of the gospel, our understanding of the gospel? Second, have you been or are you willing to be baptized since you've come to faith? Um, it's commanded only for those who believe. There are some who think baptism is, is for, for children, and there are people that we love that we're going to see in heaven who are part of that first circle. They're trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we would differ with them on this point. And, and so we, we believe God teaches that those who have faith in Jesus receive the sign. Or to put it simply, people should put on wedding rings when they get married and not many years before. That signs... Visible signs ought to correspond to the realities of which they picture. Therefore, only those who we believe are regenerate, born again. Only those who we believe the Spirit has joined to the body of Christ ought to receive the sign of that baptism. That's the simplest way I can think about it. In Acts 8.36, to demonstrate this, um, remember the, the story of Simon the sorcerer, Simon Magus, sometimes he's called, in Acts 8? He's baptized. He makes some profession of faith, and he's baptized. And then he saw, in verse 18, when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, now get this, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Simon, even though you've been baptized, you have nothing in common with us. He doesn't say, you're a member of the new covenant, you're just being unfaithful. You have no portion with us. Getting wet with water did nothing to unite you with us because your heart is revealed. as unbelieving. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord, if possible, that the intent of your heart may be forgiven. Peter says, you're not forgiven. You need to, to repent. You have no portion in part with us, even though you've undertaken this sign. In other words, you're no more married than my son or daughter would be because they snuck my wedding ring on. No, the sign is for those for whom it pictures the reality. Point three, it is a visible and public sign of the Spirit's effective baptism. I don't have time to go there because we're running short on time as it is, but if you look at those two references in Acts 10 and Acts 11, the distinction between water baptism, which is a sign, and the Spirit's baptism, which is effective, is seen. Peter comes to Cornelius' household, 
and he's preaching the gospel. And while he's preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit descends upon Cornelius in his house. And then in response to that, Peter says, who can forbid water if God's sent his spirit? And so they baptize them. And then in chapter 11, as Peter recounts these events to the Jerusalem council, he makes it clear they received the Spirit's baptism, so who is I to say they couldn't have water baptism? That distinction is important for a number of New Testament passages because the Spirit's baptism, listen to 1 Peter 3.21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And you go, whoa, 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 baptism saves? Not a removal of dirt from the body, which I think is Peter's way of saying, I, I don't mean water baptism. I'm not talking about water baptism. No, that doesn't save you. Not a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So water baptism is a visible sign of the Spirit's work, which is invisible. It also serves another point. It serves to unite one with a local church. So if you think, if you think of these six points of membership that we've covered, first, faith in the gospel. Faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ makes you a member of the universal church. It doesn't necessarily make you a member in this church. But the pattern we see in Scripture is not only that baptism is done with water, but it's done usually with an audience, usually with people present. And that those people present usually are baptizing them into the body. That's what we saw in Acts chapter 2. Peter preached... The men responded, they were cut to the heart, and it says, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So the, the movement is this, Peter preaches the gospel, then people respond rightly, they're immediately baptized, and then they're taken into the church. How do we know who to add? We add those people who came forward for baptism, I think is probably what the discussion between the apostles looked like. And this is the pattern we see again and again. It enables us to identify and mark out. This is one of the reasons why if someone's refused to be baptized, if someone didn't know, if someone was confused, I'm not sure, dude, we'll, we'll totally work with you. But if someone said, hey, I want to be part of this church, but I refuse to be baptized, like, I don't know of a Christianity like that. The New Testament doesn't. Like, it's one for one in the New Testament. And I have to challenge them, like, look, you need to be more afraid of God than whatever it is you're afraid of about getting baptized. And if you're struggling, come talk to us. I don't want to, I don't want to do do violence to anyone's conscience or mind. But there is no unbaptized New Testament Christianity. It is only a sign, but signs can be significant. Signs can be important. It serves to unite one with the local church. First, it's modeled by the first church. Acts two forty one. We see that, and I give the other references there. But I want you to think of it this way: by what, what, what is the reason why when someone's baptized, we gather the body? I, I think probably a couple of reasons. One, it's encouraging to our faith. I, I love our baptism services, hearing people testify to how God has worked in their heart and their lives. But there's another function. By going on record publicly, are you not inviting those who witness your confession of faith to hold you to it? to encourage you in it? Are we not, by, by applauding, by amening a baptism, are we not in some sense, receiving that, that stewardship that we will care for, we will love, we will pray for th those people. L listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12 to 13. Paul is, is, is trying to exhort Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, I don't know if Paul is referencing Timothy's baptism, or if there was some sort of setting apart for public ministry going on. But what matters is this public testimony on Timothy's part is then used by Paul to exhort him on further. That's part of the nature of, of public confessions, public testimonies. And so one of the things being baptized does is you've gone on record. There's now a hundred or so people who've heard you confess your faith in Jesus who now can spur you on, encourage you on. And if you start to stray, hey, hey, remember that good confession you made four years ago? Hold fast to it. Don't shrink back. And so 
Baptism, usually in the New Testament, becomes the avenue by which people get united and joined to the body because now there's a group of people who can witness your confession of faith, who can encourage your confession of faith. The blanks here, it enables the local church to confirm and guard one's confession of faith because that's part of what we're understanding in membership is a responsibility for each other's discipleship, a responsibility for each other's perseverance that... Hebrews 4, Hebrews 3, sorry, 12 to 14 is true for us. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. So the first two points of what it means to be members to us, what membership means to us is we are a group of Christians. We are a group of those who are trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ with a common understanding of that gospel, with a common response of faith. And we are those who've obeyed that first step of Christian faithfulness and we've been baptized. Many of us have witnessed each other's baptisms. Many of us have even heard each other confess our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that then gives us a basis on which we persevere and work together. Now, in the next four weeks, we'll go through our remaining four points. But I just want to challenge you this morning not to skim over the gospel. As I said at the beginning, nothing is more important. Nothing could be more important. Please be clear on that. If you have any questions, if you have any confusion about what the gospel is and how one must respond, please talk to me or one of the elders. And if you think you've come to faith, if you think you are a disciple of Christ and you have not been obedient to, to be baptized since coming to faith, please be obedient. Please obey your Lord, your God, and talk to one of us, and we'd love to help you do that as well. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord God, we, we rejoice that even as we were helpless, even as we were guilty with no avenue of escape, you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to do what we could not do, to live the life we could not live, to fulfill all righteousness in his living and to bear the just punishment of our sin in his death on the cross. We rejoice that he did not stay dead, but he was raised from the dead three days later and that in his resurrection we see the promise of our own resurrection in his death we see our forgiveness and in his life we see our life lord i pray that each and every one of us here would respond as you command in repentance and faith that there would no one who would be indifferent but that all of us might know the life that is in jesus christ and then give us the boldness, the confidence, the fearlessness to be obedient, to come forward and be baptized. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.